All right, we'll get started. How y'all doing? Good. Good. All right. How's everybody's week? Everybody out of school? We're good, right? Huh? You're sunburned? What? Really? Yeah. What do you... Well, that's not surprising. Okay, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Josh is, while Josh rounds up everybody, uh, helps make sure everybody's in here. Let me go ahead and pray for us and uh, we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for these students. Thank you for your word that you have written to us and given to us. I pray that you would uh, speak through your word and that you would teach us and sanctify us. And this is Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, as we um, continue this Emmaus Road series, um, I've, I've talked to Josh and, and a couple of the guys around here. I think what's unique about this, and, and I know Josh is excited about it, and I think those that are involved, we're excited about teaching this to y'all. One of the unique aspects of this, because we are going to go through each book of the Bible, there are many that are in the church today that have been in the church for decades, and there's portions of Scripture they've never really, other than maybe read through, just to read through it, never have really explored um, certain sections of the Bible. And I think numbers, among others, are, are some of the Scriptures that, you know, you really don't hear preachers and pastors preach from these texts very often because they can be difficult. But I think that the... Church miss, misses the richness that is found in all of Scripture, no matter how monotonous it might seem and how foreign to us as Western-minded 21st century people. It, it's a difficult, can be difficult at times. So that's one of the reasons I'm excited about this series because it, 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 I think it opens up the richness, the richness of God's Word to us. And again, this Emmaus Road series, what we're trying to do is see Christ and the gospel from every book of the Bible. Because Jesus himself says on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, he opened the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, showed them everything concerning himself. So for numbers, I think it's important that we start at the beginning. The first 11 verse, or chapters of the book of Genesis covers a great amount of time. From creation to Babel, chapter 1 through 11, there's probably between 1,500 and 2,000 years of time elapses. It's a great amount of time. But beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, through the rest of the book, it slows down drastically. And God focuses our attention on this man, Abram and his family. In fact, from Genesis 12 through the book of Revelation, God focuses our attention on this man and what he will accomplish in and through him. There's two key passages that I think we should remember for tonight's study, but I think going forward along with um, this series, begin, show that first slide, uh, Cortland. It's Genesis 12, the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. And now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and in and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then the second slide is found in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So the book of Genesis begins with this man Abraham, uh, his, son, his grandson Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons and their wives. They're poor, and they are in danger because there's a famine in their land. The promise to Abram uh, that God made is not looking good as the book of Genesis closes. So the book of Numbers, again, it ends with Abraham and this one family that God brings into Egypt. And if you've, you know the story, you've been through the book of Genesis with Joseph and his brothers and his brothers sell him into to slavery. He winds up in Egypt and in God's providence God raises Joseph up to he is second in charge behind Pharaoh in Egypt. And in that God saves and providentially saves his family by bringing them into the land that has prepared to face the famine. So this family enters Egypt and there's 12 12 brothers and their wives, and 400 years later, he has made them a great nation. So the book of Numbers opens up, and it's roughly 13 months following the exodus from Egypt, with the people of Israel still camped at Mount Sinai. So they reach, in the book of Exodus, they reach Sinai after they are... They come out and they reach Mount Sinai. We know the story of Moses going up on the mountain. He gets the, the, the law and the Ten Commandments. So the people are still at Sinai when the book of Numbers opens up. And that's where we find ourselves. And the Numbers breaks itself down in three distinct sections. The first ten chapters covers God's preparing the people to depart from Sinai to go to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. So he's making preparations for them. Chapters 11 through 25 deal with the wilderness and the, the wandering from the departure to the arrival at the, um, at the plains of Canaan right before they enter the Promised Land. And then the final 10 uh, chapters, 26 through 36, God again makes preparations for the people to enter and take possession of the land. So a little bit about numbers. In the Hebrew Bible, it was customary that the first, the book of the Bible, the, the, the book that the, in the Hebrew Bible, they would just take the first word of, the, of that particular book, and that was its name. But the Hebrews broke tradition with numbers, and it was from the fifth word, which meant in the wilderness. And that is a more apt description of what is taking place in this book. When it was translated, the Hebrew was translated into Greek later in uh, around the New Testament time. It was translated, it was given the name Numbers because there are two censuses taken. The very first chapter, they take a census of the fighting age men. And then again in chapter 26, as they make preparations to enter the promised land, they take another census 
again, of the fighting aged men. That's the Hebrew naming of the book gives us a better idea because Numbers only deals with two chapters, the census in the beginning and the census at the end. But the, it's dealing with a broader section of time of the people of Israel in the wilderness. So there's a common theme in Scripture. And God is glorified in salvation through judgment. When God judges sin, and it is right for him to do so, we also see in his judgment, he shows his grace and his mercy in salvation. As I've mentioned, chapter 1 talks about um, is the census. God commands Moses to take a census of all the fighting age men from the age of 20 and older, all who were able to go to war. From this census, there were numbered 603,550 fighting age men. It is estimated based off this census that there were as many as 2 million Israelites that left Egypt during the Exodus. So again, as we read from uh, this passage here in, in Genesis 15, God took the 12 sons of Jacob and their wives and in a period of 400 years made them into a great nation. And also from the same passage, God judged the nation of Egypt, as he said he would, in the exodus of the people of Israel, that they, that they also came out of Egypt with great possessions. Not only does he judge the people of Egypt for what, he has done, what they have done to his people, and he judges them, but he also, they come out with the riches of Egypt. So they enter Egypt a poor family. And 400 years later, they leave a people great in number and of great wealth. Again, this shows God's sovereignty in everything. Nothing belongs to us. Everything belongs to him. And he can accomplish things even when we can't see how it can happen. Again, keep in mind, it does not look good for them as the... As, the book closes. Old man Jacob, is he's old, he's close to death. And there's a famine in the land. It, the prospects for uh, their prosperity does not look good. But we fast forward again 400 years because of the promise he made to Abram back in Genesis 15 that he, will, that he told them they would be sojourners and servants. But he would judge that nation and he would bring them out. And that's what we see in this generation of numbers. So a little bit about the first part. As, again, I said he prepares them in the first 10 chapters to depart Sinai. Again, they've been there for 13 months. The book opens and it says in the, third, uh, the, sec the, the second, first month of the second year after they departed from Egypt. So the preparations he does, again, the first thing they do is number the fighting age men. Why? Because they're going to go to war. They have to dispossess a people that have already, they already possess this land. And we'll see a little bit further how this goes. Uh, some of the things he does is he, he sets aside and anoints Aaron and his sons as priests over the people. He sets aside the tribe of Levi uh, to be uh, uh, servants of the temple, the tabernacle. In the wilderness, it's the tabernacle. It's the tent of, uh, the tabernacle of meeting. Um, and he also sets 
how they will camp. And he sets three tribes to the east, three tribes to the north, three tribes, tribes to the west, and three tribes to the south. And in the center is the, ten, the tabernacle of meeting, which symbolizes where the presence of God uniquely dwells among his people. And during the day when they were camped, there would be um, a cloud that would hover over the tent, and at night it would be a fire that would hover over the tent. And that, it, again, that is symbolic of God's presence among his people. And when they would lift, whether the cloud or the fire would lift, the people would set out and depart the wilderness. So and these are some of the things he sets regulations and, and different things in the first 10 chapters. And one of the last things the people do before they set out is they observe the Passover one more time. And then in chapter 10, about halfway through, they depart Sinai. And then chapter 11 opens. And let me read for you the first verse of chapter 11. Again, keep in mind where they've come. We're 13 months from them coming out of Egypt and out of slavery. They've cried to God and he has delivered them. 13 months removed from that. Chapter 11 opens up and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Not going very well right out of the gate. He's delivered them, and they complain. One of the things that you will see through the book of Numbers, and really through this generation, while God delivered them from Egypt, they never left. Physically, they left Egypt, but they spiritually, their heart never left Egypt. They longed for the very thing they cried out to God to deliver them from. They will continually do that. That is a pattern that will persist through the rest of this book. Chapter 13, this is a pivotal part. Again, we're wanting to see Christ from the book of Numbers. Chapter 13, we read of the 12 spies sent to the Promised Land and their subsequent report to Moses, Aaron, and the congregation and show them the fruit of the land. Um, go to the next slide, Cortland. So what we have here, the spies are sent into Canaan. Y'all have probably heard this story. This is where God, or God commands Moses and they send the people to Canaan to spy out the land. And they are gone for 40 days. And when they return, they report. Before we do that, have y'all got, have y'all got the Bibles? Whoever's got a Bible, I need somebody to look up Exodus 3, 7, and 8. Who wants it? Aiden? Exodus 13, 5. Go ahead, Casey. And then Leviticus, Josiah, 20, 22, and 24. When you get there, Aiden, go ahead. What kind of a land? Full of milk and honey. Uh, Casey?
Okay. Yep. Josiah. You are to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and to do them, so that the land where I am bringing you to live will not find you out. You must not follow the statutes of the nations I am driving out before you, for they did follow these things, and I abhorred them. And I promise you, you are inherit their land, since I will give it to you possess a land farm with milk and honey. Okay. So the spies return in Numbers chapter 13, and in verse 27, this is what it says. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Does this sound familiar of the passages we just read? These are the promises that God has made with these people. And the report of the spies is exactly, exactly as he said. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, this milk and honey, this is a prosperous, it's rich, it is a, it's a great land, it's a pleasing land. It's, it goes on to say in other portions of scripture, it is the greatest of all the lands. That's the land that God has promised his people and he will give it to them. So, so far so good. The 12 spies return, and they all are in agreement with the report. Here's where the difference in the rub goes. And this will be a problem for this people for generations. 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Again, we could go back to 15, of Genesis 15. This is the very land that God tells Abram that he's going to give them. Uh, Aiden, I believe the passage you read, these people were in there, right? God said this is the land. That the, these people possess the land, and I'm giving their land to you because ultimately that land is mine. So this is the report they give. It's like God says. It's just as he said. But the people are great in number, and there are giants. The sons of Anak, again, that's the Nephilim. If you go on and read further down, the Nephilim, and we can get off into that. They're large people. I don't know what they look like. I don't know, but they were great and giant people. They were many people. They were fortified people. What the people of Israel saw said, we can't take them. But at any point in this promise that we've read, that God said, I'm going to take you to the edge of this land and now it's up to you. Or did he say, I will give you the land? Which one was it? Did he say, I will give it to you or you'll have to take it? I'm going to take you as far as this land, but then it's up to you. No. I will give it to you. So, Again, when God says he will do something, you can count on it. But their eyes allowed them to be deceived and fear enters into them. So 10 of the 12 spies said, no, -uh, we can't. Jos uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb alone said, yep, I agree. They agreed with the other 10. They said, yes, they're a great people. They are a great people. There are giants in the land. But Caleb says, 
Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Why are we able to overcome it? Why does Caleb have that faith? Because God is going with him. There's another section of Scripture where it talks about this, and God says he will send an angel before them. In Exodus 33, he will send an angel before them to fight for them. Again, the sin of unbelief of this people is going to be a problem for them for the rest of this book, and really it never, it really never leaves these people. Throughout their generations, throughout the history of the Old Testament, we will read of ebbs and flows, but for the most part, the people do not believe God's promises, and they are ultimately judged for it. So, um, Numbers 13, 28, as I've read. So from here on, through chapter 25, we read of Israel's continual rebellion against God and his promises made to the people. So God judges an entire generation for 40 years by marching them to death in the wilderness. And that's what we read from this point on is, is, a, is a four decades of them just wandering the wilderness between Sinai and the plains of Canaan before the Promised Land. And in it, they were not just disobedient to the promises of God in unbelief, but as you read this book, you will see the rebellion. They chase after other uh, nations and their gods, and, and, and they are a disobedient people, and God continues to judge them. However, throughout this period from uh, through the wilderness wanderings, we still see God's grace and his mercy towards these disobedient people. Again, God is glorified in salvation through judgment. He rightly judges sin. It is right for him to do so. It is only right for him to do so. One example, if you'll turn, uh, if you've got your Bibles, you're following along. Numbers um, chapter 21, we see an instance with the fiery serpents. Just a little bit about this. Chapter 21 opens up when this uh, a Canaanite king, King Arad, is defeated before Israel. The people ask God, if you will give this people into uh, our hand, we will devote their cities to destruction. So the Lord heeded their call, and they did exactly that. Um, and they devoted them to, in their cities to destruction, so the name of the place was called Hormah. But from there they set out, and disobedience sets in again, and the Lord judges this people for their disobedience and their rebellion by sending fiery serpents among the people. And it said they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. <clears throat> and the people came to Moses again and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses does again, as this pattern has continued, the people sin, the God judges, they cry to Moses, and Moses intercedes and intervenes on the people's behalf, and the God relents. And in this one he relents, and Moses cries out to God. He, God hears them, and he tells Moses to take a bronze, to fashion a bronze serpent, and hoist it 
on a staff and hoist it above the people. And when the people are bitten, if they look to this bond serpent, they will be healed of the snake bites and they will not die. So how does this point to Christ? Well, just in and of itself, this would be a very difficult text for us to go, well, there's no way this points to Jesus or anything that he might do. Well, we would be right, except John 3 tells us how this points to Jesus. John 3 is the uh, interchange and the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, and this is, we get the, the, the Bible verse that even the vilest pagan knows, and that's Genesis or John 3.16. We all know that one. But verse 14 of chapter, th of chapter 3 of John says, well, let's begin in verse two, uh, 13. No one who descended from heaven, the son, uh, no one has, ever, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus himself equates that just as this serpent, so this serpent that, that is lifted in the, um, uh, the wilderness for the people to be saved from these fiery serpents and the bites that they might live foreshadows and foretells of what Christ must do. That he says the Son of Man, he's the Son of Man, Jesus is the Son of Man. He must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Another example comes from Numbers um, chapters 22 through 24. So if you want to turn back there. This, we talked about this, I talked about this a little bit back around Christmas when we were doing the, 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 um, wise men from the east and, and, and doing the gifts of the, the wise men. I brought up the story of Balak, Balaam, and his donkey. Let me summarize for you what is happening here with uh, Balak is a, uh, the king of Moab. This is a, a, a city and a nation around where the people are going. And the people are conquering these lands and there are a great number of people and he's afraid of the people. So he summons for Balaam, who Balaam is a foreign prophet from of the region of Mesopotamia. This man, Balaam, is not a lover of God. And what makes this one of the great stories in Scripture is, again, well, it's got one of the fantastic stories of it has a donk, talking donkey. And if somebody ever asks you, do you believe that, that a donkey really talked? Yes, I absolutely believe a donkey talked. Do you believe that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish? Yes, I believe he spent three days in the belly of a fish. Why? Because the Bible says so. And God as creator can do anything with his creation and his creatures. So this donkey actually spoke. It's not, a, it's not an image. It's not a dream. It actually happened. So he sends for Balaam to curse Israel. This is what this man did. 
he was a foreign prophet and he would pronounce curses and apparently he had a reputation that if he pronounced a curse on you or a people, that it was, that it happened. So, you know, Balak's not just a, a, a shot in the dark, dark here. He's going after the man he thinks can do this. So Balaam agrees and he comes and the first, it, it, there's four oracles, four prophecies that Balaam pronounces on Egypt, I mean on Israel. Again, this is a foreign prophet. He's not a lover of God. And it said the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. And he pronounces the first oracle. And Balak gets mad. I told you to curse them, and you've done nothing but bless them. What are you doing? So they change locations. Maybe this will help. And it says again, And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. And he pronounces a second oracle. And Balak gets mad again. You've not cursed them like I have asked you. You have only blessed them. Balaam's third oracle. Again, the same thing is repeated. He blesses them. He blesses them. He doesn't curse them. And in his fourth oracle, you see again this prophecy, this oracle from this false prophet. The fourth one repeats just like the, 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 uh, the first three. But in it, we get the picture and a prophecy of the Messiah to come. In chapter 24 of Numbers, verse 17, it says, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This is a messianic prophecy. It is referred to again in the, 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 uh, what we would call the Christmas story, the, the advent of Christ that is recounted for us at Christmas every year. The star of Jacob. What, what do we look? That's what the, the, the wise men were following, right? They were following this star. This foreign prophet that was hired to pronounce judgment and curse Israel in the hands of God does nothing but pronounce blessing. So, again, we're looking for Jesus. We've seen the example of the fiery serpent and the, the bronze serpent that they held up in the wilderness and Jesus himself says, just like we, Moses did in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We see in this foreign king trying to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, even, the, even a foreign prophet, even a pagan prophet, a, not a lover of God, when God decides to speak through even a donkey, he also can speak through the mouth of a pagan false prophet from another land, and he speaks four oracles, and we get a messianic prophecy from that. So, how does the book of Numbers point to Jesus? Well, in many ways, but I'm going to read a lengthy passage because it, it, it kind of struck me. Um, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, from there in just a minute. When we come to the Old Testament and there's difficulties, it, it's been said that um, 
in many ways, the New Testament Scriptures is an unveiling of sorts of what was promised in the things in the Old Testament that shine a brighter light on what God was doing and is and ha- was doing in the people of Israel as He brings them um, out of Egypt and, and they progress throughout the generations. So in... in um, Again, this is going to be a lengthy read, but I think it's important to help us understand what's happening here with this, particularly this wilderness generation that has just come out of Egypt. Chapter 3 begins, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways and sworn my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come here to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We'll stop right there. He's clearly talking about the wilderness generation here. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better prophet, the better king. But it's more than that. We're going to keep reading here. This is something that I hadn't considered. But he keeps speaking of enter their rest. Were they entering their rest or were they entering a land? It was both. So chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have been, who have believed, enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in, his, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's quoting a psalm. That's what he's been quoting from. That's why he's talking about David. For Joshua had... For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later, uh, later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This passage speaks, when it talks about Joshua, not only is the promised land a foreshadowing of entering Christ, it, it is an entering of rest. He, 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 who is Joshua? Moses doesn't get to take the people to the promised land. He leads them as far as the promised land, but he doesn't get to go in. God, he dies overlooking the promised land. Joshua takes them into the promised land. This rest he's talking about is Christ. We, have, we must be in Christ to have rest. The promised land is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the rest in Christ. This land was not going to fulfill them, but it's believing the promise of this land that God has promised to give them. Do we believe in the promises of Christ? If we believe in Him, we're warned by the author of Hebrews just like they were warned in the Old Testament. Take care lest there be any uh, evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. We're warned by the, by the New Testament author of Hebrews to beware of unbelief. Unbelief is the root of sin. It's how it plays itself out. Sin, there's a multitude of sins, but ultimately it is the sin of unbelief that we do not believe the promises of God. The first sin, the serpent says to our first mother Eve, has God really said? Yes, the correct answer, and that's when her husband Adam should have intervened and said, yes, he has said, now go away. But they didn't. It was the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief will be the undoing of the people of Israel. Let it not be our undoing. We must believe in the promises of God. And in Christ, we can enter our rest. It said if you are free in Christ, you are free indeed. But if you are not, you are still a slave. A slave to the thing that will kill every one of us, and that's sin. We are slaves to sin, and the only freedom from the curse of sin and from our sin is to be in Christ. And that's where we find our rest. That's where we find our freedom. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for these students. Father, I pray that if there has been anything that I have said that is an error, that you would remove it from their, from their mind. I just pray, Father, that you would... Uh, work in the, and continue to work in the life of these students. May we seek to, all of us, seek to honor and glorify you with our lives 
as we go about our days. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.